Hello everyone. So today we have with us Akash Singh Rathod, and today we are going to discuss his recent book, Becoming Baba Sahib: Birth to Mahar, 1891 to 1929. His volume one of two-part biography of Baba Sahib Ambedkar. So before we start this interview, how far did you run today? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 quite ashamed you've asked me that question because I've just reached uh, Delhi and I'm staying okay. in a hotel. And this morning, I planned to run around Lodi Gardens, which yesterday um, I, I did when I when I landed in Delhi, uh, 12k. And this morning, I was so tired that I quickly jumped up and thought, "Oh, I have this podcast, Navigating India, to do." And uh, if I'm uh, energized afterwards, I'll go for uh, I'll go to the gym in the hotel here. But I, I feel very I lost a lost opportunity because I love running in Lodi Garden and and I uh, every time I'm in Delhi I do it as often as possible but to, this morning I missed it. I'm so sorry to put you in spot with the very first question. Yeah, you caught, you 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 embarrassed me with question number one because I'm I'm quite a, uh, a fanatic about uh, every day, no matter what, doing my my training and you, and and you caught me on the <laughs> on the one day I. Broke that principle. No, but but you have to tell me. You wrote an article in the Scroll, the philosopher to Iron Man, where you have yeah. completed six Iron Man races on five continents. Yes, like now seven. Now seven. Actually. Oh, wonderful! Now yeah. seven. So after book was published, you have finished two more. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I have one more coming on November nineteen in Phu Quoc in Vietnam, which I'm quite excited about. That's a small island, so I think we. Since the cycle is 180 kilometers, I think we'll cycle around the entire island, uh, which which should be <laughs> quite useful. All the best, sir. So now, before we delve into the book, could you tell a bit about yourself, your education background, and your intellectual journey to finally becoming a philosopher? Ah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I I'm going to tell you. You know, I spent many, many, many years studying because I have two bachelors and three masters and two PhDs. And, so I didn't just do the normal academic path of BA to MA to uh, PhD, but I did two uh, simultaneously. One to satisfy my parents. I, I did law and became a lawyer for a short time. And one to satisfy myself, which was philosophy. Um, but I'm just going to tell you uh, something very, very interesting. I mentioned that I'm a lawyer, did LLB. Another thing, I grew up uh, basically on the Columbia University campus because my father was a professor there. So I was at Columbia. I didn't actually study at Columbia, but I, I well, I studied at the grammar uh, the, the, the the school, the Columbia uh, Grammar School, but not at the university. But I grew up on the campus, and then I I myself went to London School of Economics, LSE, and University of London, and then as I mentioned, I did LLB. So. Anyone who knows something about Ambedkar knows that by some very strange coincidence, I was did precisely the same things that, that he had done, uh, Columbia LSE and uh, LLB. Uh, but I did, oh, he also went to Germany to study. I also did my postdoc in Germany. <laughs> I, I forgot even that coincidence. Um, he, he didn't manage to complete his, uh, which what would have been his third PhD at uh, uh at the University of Germany, but um, I spent about uh, a third of my life in, in the United States uh, because my you know, my father had 
shifted there to teach at the university a third of my life in Europe, uh, where I got most of my higher education and then started working as a professor and then about a third of my life in India. Uh, so it's divided between these three uh, locations and so has my work a bit. Um, I write you know, on, on European uh, thought and a lot on uh, Indian history, law, philosophy, and so on. Uh, yeah. So that is really interesting. So you had the same path, like from Colombia, LSE, and then India, same as Ambedkar. So well, 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 let's, let, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let me say before it gets a little exaggerated, not same because mine was kind of a privileged journey. Uh, I was never short on, you know, the funds and so on. And his was a struggle every moment of the way. But it was the same locations in some, for, in, in, somehow. So, like, did, did these locations have, have actually influenced you to study Ambedkar, per se? Okay. Well, you know, they, 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 the real thing that got me into studying Ambedkar was meeting my wife in Berlin. My wife comes from Ambedkar's community, the Maharshab caste of Maharashtra. Uh, she's a Dalit. And when, when, when she and I met, I'm going to tell a revealing story, which I already began this podcast by embarrassing myself. I'm going to embarrass myself more, uh, double down as it were. When I first met my wife, so as I had mentioned, I had grown up largely in the U.S. and Europe. And the U.S. in this era, just think my father went in the 60s, right? Uh, so 68. In this era, there, were, there was nobody from the marginalized communities of India who was abroad um, in the U.S. Of course, people in the Gulf and things like that who were moved for labor, but no one, no kind of economic migrant like the so-called upper castes who... Who, uh, who went to the United States and uh, the new immigration countries. So I grew up not knowing who Ambedkar was. And uh, this is quite shameful uh, to me now. Uh, made all the more ridiculous by how we overlapped in these locations and education and so on. When I met my wife, and now I'm going to tell you the most embarrassing thing that I can possibly say, so everything will improve from this after this point on, I saw, you know, she's a very self-conscious Dalit uh, uh, woman. I saw a large photo of uh, Dr. Bitter in her in her hall, in her house in Berlin. And I asked her stupidly, is that your grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> now, What's moving and a testimony to the kind of work that I've been doing the last twenty years uh, since I since that moment since that day twenty more than twenty years is her reply. You know what she told me? Yeah, she said yes. <laughs> so <laughs> later, when I asked her, "Were you making a fool of me?" She said, "Well, first of all, no. You you started as a fool. I didn't, I had nothing to do with it." But she said, "Listen, now you understand." Uh, the movement, now you understand the man, and you understand how people like me wouldn't be here without him. Uh, you know, she's a diplomat in the Indian Foreign Service. It's inconceivable for Adalit to be in such a position had it not been for the, the legacy of Ambedkar. Um, so she said, when I said he was my grandfather, I meant it, because I wouldn't be here uh, uh, if he hadn't uh, been. So my, my, my first meeting with 
Avidka was not because of the strange coincidences and overlaps. It was through my wife and a very uh, quick, you know, quick learning curve entering into that uh, into that community through her through her uh, my wife's side, uh, my wife's family. Her father was uh, Dalit activist, Dalit Panther. In fact, at the first Dalit Panther meeting, and uh, they quickly integrated me into their you know their way of seeing the world and so i've had a very while i had the first 20 years total blindness and ignorance about about the man um the next uh you know have all been deeply immersed in 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 that uh, uh culture and um uh way of seeing the world this was really really interesting and from not knowing Ambedkar to now writing one of the highly accessible uh, biographies of Ambedkar, uh, must congratulate you on that achievement. So, so I think first thing about your book was it was written in a very easy language with no jargon. Despite you being a philosopher, you haven't yeah. told the philosopher cap. Uh, so that's what my that's what my question is about. Like, what was your writing process it looks like and, and your research process and how much care did you take in writing this particular text? Yeah, this is the most carefully written uh, book that I have yet written and, and I believe it's my ninth book. Uh, I was doing a podcast yesterday and the, uh, the, 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 the woman interviewing me kept mentioning it as my eighth and I felt I don't think it's my eighth. I think it's my ninth. But anyway, I haven't counted. But nevertheless, there have been eight or nine uh, books. And there's one thing I want to say about the... If you go back to my books uh, written 10 years ago, for example, they are not as accessible as this one, which you point out is very readable and no jargon and so on. And this came from that process I was telling you about, not just with my wife's family, but at teaching it universities around India, JNU, Delhi University, Mumbai University, HCU, NALSAR, uh, National Law University, all these universities where I've taught in India, uh, always I realized that there are so many first-generation learners in, in our country. Uh, this is very different from when I teach in Europe and the United States, which for the most part have a vast majority of, you know, people anyone in universities there their parents were also in, had, had university degrees um, and uh, encountering first generation learners and encountering a constant kind of critique of the opacity or un- lack of clarity and straightforwardness in my philosophical works or my law you know legal uh, writings uh, slowly led me to understand that I'm not writing my books, especially on the Ambedkar movement and so on. You know, I, I think this is my fourth, fifth, fifth book uh, dealing with Ambedkar. Um, so I'm not writing these books for you know hi-fi professors and so on, and I don't need to use the kind of language that that. The, the, the university professors in the ivory towers are, are using and each book I don't know if you saw uh, Ambedkar's preamble, the book that came out previous to this so each book has, Ambedkar's preamble I made, I was very proud of how accessible I made it 
but then when this book, I started writing this book to get to you know the next part of your question, I said this book cannot have any jargon. It has to be totally accessible, even to people who, you see, I struggle with reading Marathi very, very badly. Um, I have to do it for the research that I've done because, you know, a great deal of what I've exposed is only available in Marathi. But, you know, when I have so much, I understand the difficulty of reading a language that you've not been educated in. So there are going to be Marathi speakers who are reading this Becoming Babasai. And I want them to be able to access it just like uh, anyone else can. So for all of these reasons, writing for first-generation learners, writing for people who are not necessarily educated into reading in English and so on, uh, my books have been steadily getting more and more accessible. And I've learned not to, as we say, dumb it down to make it that way, but a great effort in my writing style, the amount of effort I put into rereading a sentence and finding a better word like with you I had just said the opacity of my language and then immediately once I said opacity I changed it to the you know lack of uh, uh, clarity clarity is a much easier word to understand than opacity so this constant questioning of you know are these really the words that I need to use and aren't there more accessible words so that was the process of writing a clearly accessible book and I'm very proud of becoming Baba Saib for being that way. Even some people who can't speak to me in English will speak in Hindi or Marathi. I have to admit, I can hardly understand spoken Marathi also. But uh, they will come up to me and they'll say, you know, I, I, I read Becoming Baba Saib and I really enjoyed it. And I'm so proud that that can, that can be possible. Now, the other aspect, which is the research and writing, that is very complicated because I think there's a because of the simplicity of the language, one might get fooled into uh, complacency. In fact, every single page of that book of Becoming Balatab, I think it's about 300 pages, every single page reveals something that has never been said before about his life. At least never been said with total accuracy. So, you know, anyone will might say that he went to Germany, as I had mentioned, but my book is the only one that gives the correct dates of when he went because he didn't go when the other biographers say he went in 1922, he went in 1921. It will say which program he went to study because other people say he went to study Sanskrit, but I've shown that he went to study a third PhD in economics. And, uh, you know, so I might repeat things that people have already heard, but they're always uh, stated with uh, a kind of historical accuracy and precision, which uh, is unique to this one book, um, and I'm very I'm harping on that because I'm very proud of that as well. There have been many new biographies coming out recently, but actually, what happens is, as I mentioned, they go back to the Dalanjay Kheer biography if the author reads English, or they go back to the Karmode biography if the author reads uh, Marathi. But my book, I think. Is the, no, not, not I think, is certainly the only completely originally researched book. And so the process of researching was very intensive, took me a decade. And the process of writing was very attentive. You know, everything that I write, I check and I double check and uh, I triple check before letting it, uh, uh, letting it uh, 
get published. <laughs> That's interesting, especially I think in the, at the end of your book, you have actually translated the index of the Kimothi's multi-volume biography of Ambedkar, which is a yeah. very interesting I think uh, the next question which I want to ask, which you have stated in this book, that the aim of your work on Ambedkar is to foreground Ambedkar as an individual rather than produce a bloodless political or intellectual biography and help us understand how Ambedkar became Ambedkar. So could you reflect on this particular point? Yeah, actually, from other biographies of Ambedkar. Yes, yes. So, you know, I think I cite Shashi Tharoor's new biography. Now, it's not very fair to pick on Shashi Tharoor's biography as a biography because that's not really what it is. As a biography, it just relies on Kira and uh, Jafalo. So it's full of mistakes and Shashi is a, a kind of, a, I can't say friend, but acquaintance. And I've told him very clearly that, you know, the historical part of your, the biographical part of your book is not very valuable. However, it is the only book that I know of, other than maybe Kanchiram, where one statesperson is reflecting on a greater statesperson, you know, because Shashi uh, uh, is a is a statesman of our day, whether you like him or not, and, and so on, but he, you know, you have to recognize him as that. And how often have we had a statesman reflect on another statesman? So, from that point of view, his book is valuable. But one very grave error that he makes in it is to suggest that we don't have access to the blood, uh, you know, the, the vitality of Ambedkar only to his thoughts. And I wanted to prove that completely wrong. And uh, uh, his thoughts are there in my book, but, you know, I said that this is like my fifth book on Ambedkar. I've done a five-volume uh, collection on Ambedkar, uh, all about his thoughts, you know, five volumes, thousands of pages. So here I wanted to bring out the blood, the person. Now, why is that important? There's one real significant thing about that. You're a young, you're a young man. You know that many young people today, men and women, feel on the one hand a kind of increasing oppression or lack of freedom in state politics by the state, you know, the government, uh, surveillance, silencing, you know, uh, uh, this is in, it's international, but one feels it very strongly in India, uh, especially. On the other hand, uh, while the economy might be booming in some abstract sense, there are no jobs. There, you know, there, there are no jobs for many people your your age. Uh, many people who are in college and university realize that the training they're getting, especially in the humanities and social sciences, is not for the 21st century. And there are not going to be jobs for them the way there were in a previous uh, generation. And there's a kind of despair and despondency in the eyes of many, many of my students all over the country. And I, when they come from a Dalit or a marginalized background, I ask them, and I have often asked them, do you think, you know, the, the poverty, the material constraints that you face, not being able to afford, you know, the next step in higher education and things like that, do you think that that yours is worse than Baba Sahib's was a century ago. 
do you think the political oppression that you're facing, this looming sense of uh, fascism or however you characterize it, do you think that there is less political freedom for you than there was a century ago for Baba Salamanca? If you're from a, a, a you know, an OBC or a Dalit uh, uh, caste or something like that, do you think you face more discrimination than Ambedkar did a century ago uh, for his caste? And so when you compare the current situation of youth who are in a sense of despair to what Ambedkar himself faced a century ago, you have to see that you, you have some advantage and you have, especially the point, a role model for a person who faced greater difficulties than you and yet triumphed in so many ways that he inspired all of us and he inspired you know, generations of people uh, and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Now, what's very important about this point of taking inspiration from Ambedkar when you're feeling despondent and feel that you don't have a future thinking that thinking back and he must have felt the same way he talks about that many times about how he would cry when he thought of you know the opportunities uh that had um escaped him and so on uh the important thing when you take him as that exemplar for how to be tenacious how to never give up how to keep pressing forward how to struggle work hard and so on when you take him as an that kind of example or model he has to be a human. He has to be a person. He has to be a man. Because if he's a god, if we only deify him, or if he's just a series of intellectual ideas and achievements, like the biographies. So biographies do two things. Either they make him a god, they deify him. He's not a person. Uh, or they present him just as a head, just as a mind, you know, without a body. If he's either of those two things, then how is he an example to uh, to to the young people uh, whom I'm talking about today? Gods can do anything, and thinking heads don't have any limitations. You know, mind the mind is not uh, uh, constrained the way the, the body that feels hunger and suffers poverty and feels gets excluded and things like that. So I needed Baba Sabha in this biography to be a flesh and blood human being precisely so that he could be a model for contemporary young people and people especially from marginalized backgrounds and so on but really for everybody he's a universal uh, model I think certainly inspired me in my life um, I needed him to be a flesh and blood person with a beating heart with facing difficulties that humans face so that we could take him as a model and as an example to guide us, to imitate him, imitate decisions he made, habits he had, so that we ourselves can maybe achieve something, you know, similar uh, to what uh, to what he did. Do you understand what I'm trying to, to say? Yes, yes, that is, that is actually very interesting. Like when we compare the struggles which Sambedkar has gone through, I think even after he finished his. Uh, uh, bachelor's at the Elphinstone College, uh, he felt discrimination when he was appointed in the rank of a lieutenant uh, by the Maharaja. And uh, um, two more points, I think, which I would want a little bit reflection is there was a constant crisis in his family. He lost all his sons ex ex except the firstborn. 
and also um, he was constantly facing various health issues and and the discrimination on one side throughout his life from apakas so how was he able to cope with all of these and still yeah, this, this is uh, completely remarkable and just a small correction he had lost uh, 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 two other sons but also a daughter so okay. yeah so um, four children in all he lost so um, uh personal tragedy uh he lost his wife of course and i think certainly she became very very ill uh, also and died uh, very young and uh, as you mentioned even at the rank of lieutenant he was he was just you know he was spat upon by by people uh, uh who had I, 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 I accomplished nothing remotely similar to what he himself had, had managed to do by that by that point. He faced constant struggle from outside, from inside his family, constant tragedy, and he coped basically by doing two things. One is what we call in psychoanalysis, psych- psychology, we call sublimation. So you try to take the things that are bothering you. And you, 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 you manifest that energy in a different way. And his was uh, in work, in writing. Um, every, every time, for example, he lost a child, he newly resolved to uh, achieve. To, to, so most of his children died while he was studying abroad. and when he was studying abroad he had no money to eat you know i mentioned in chapters like lunchless in london and so on uh he was basically starving uh, and he really thought uh over and over again about why is he doing this why is he putting his family through this why is he putting himself through this for for an education each time he lost a, a child he newly resolved to uh to stay firm in in this um quest to to receive higher education he was the only person from his community to achieve that those levels of education and then eventually you know i mentioned two phd's and so on he became the most educated man in the entirety of india but certainly while doing the mas and so on he was already becoming the most educated uh, uh, untouchable in the country and he would these tragedies he would sublimate it to work into writing and then he uh, newly resolved that okay i have no money i have no food my wife and my family are facing difficulty the easiest thing to do would be to give up and go back to india and just work as a as a maybe a teacher or a tutor or a, possibly even a laborer um but he newly freshly resolved every time he encountered difficulty to try harder to overcome and 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 to succeed that's one side of it second thing is that he had a mission now many of us have missions in our lives you know most of us bounce around one place to another i myself bounced around for many many years uh, partly because i was doing you know two kinds of education at the same time and was divided what should i do should i become a lawyer should i become an academic should i become a writer 
So uh, he had a mission. And when he found, when he discovered what that mission was, and I tried to write in Becoming Baba San, the moment of that discovery, which was, you know, right around the time he wrote the first editorial for his uh, newspaper, his mission was nothing short of the emancipation of his people. But when you have a mission like that, what can stop you? You know, facing a little casteism, obviously, you know, think about Gandhi's uh, mission that's an analogical figure that many more people uh, have uh, delved into his life. You know, if you have a mission such as his, what does it matter if you're if you face a crowd of armed police? You know, that's just that's that's what you expect to face. When you have a mission like Ambedkar said, you're going to emancipate the people. You expect to face casteism. You expect to face resistance. You expect to be undermined in ev- from every side. And he simply readjusted his personality, his mindset, even his physicality. You know, many people have pointed out that in the public spaces and so on, he was always very stern. But as I expose in the book, in the private, uh, in his private life, he was very kind and very even. He liked to make jokes. He was very um, sarcastic at times, and he was very uh, uh, kind and gentle. But you wouldn't get that uh, sense by looking at his statues, right? Holding the Constitution, pointing forward, everything very uh, powerful and stern. That was because he knew his mission, and he knew that being sympathetic, being mild, being kind, these things weren't going to work uh, in public given the amount of resistance and undermining and uh, criticism that he was going to face. So with this this kind of resolution, both kind of sublimation of his strategy into working harder and having a mission and knowing the difficulties that he was going to face, these things allowed him to overcome his uh, personal tragedies and the external resistance. And these, again, are things that I think you know we can model in our own lives, not to be defeated when we face something that really is defeating, you know, in some in some respects, but to find ways to navigate it and to, to, to overcome it. That's interesting. And I want to delve further about his family and where you have said in your biography, I quote, and he spent in the presence of educated elders, stepped into certain virtues typical of army such as bravery and pride right so what was the kind of influence especially the ramji sakpal had on ambedkar and also the, if i can, if i may add the religion right his father is very religious they made to read the uh, kabir poems before uh, having food right so yeah. what, are, what 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 is this kind of influence the family education military and the religion yeah so you know interestingly uh, it might sound odd to talk about religion as um, as inculcating discipline, because usually we think of it as inculcating faith or morality or something like this. But I think that one of the things that Ambedkar got from the the religious uh, lifestyle within which he was raised uh, was a sense of discipline. So there was the repetition every single night. They would go and uh, sing the pajans and read from the 
these texts and so on. And this kind of uh, constant repetition was became significant for the way that in his later life, he would spend every single day spending some time reading and writing. You know, and uh, I don't know how, what kind of audience you have for navigating India, but I'm sure there are sort of budding writers uh, also. And um, and it's interesting to see how Ambedkar's experiences of daily ritualistic study, even if it's study of scripture, uh, led to, in later life, a kind of ritualism about studying um, more, you know, academic topics, uh, history, even history of religion. You know, as you know, uh, later, his uh, study of uh, the world religions is very, very intensive. And it must have some kind of uh, background in this, uh, in his religious upbringing. But what was certainly leading to kind of uh, characteristics of his, like his courage in the face of so much opposition and his uh, fortitude, his strength, these all came from his uh, local community when uh, he was very young and growing up because the Mahar regiment, the, the Mahar military uh, had all of the same kind of military virtues and values that any other uh, military group, you know, uh, would have, whether they were the Sadars or the um, uh, the Chatea, uh, the wider Chatea platoons uh, uh, and so on. And you see that with the way that in every speech throughout the 1920s, Ambito references the prowess of uh, that community. So he says, you know, we are a martial people. We are people who know war. We're people who are courageous in battle. We're people who don't give up. And yet, as untouchables, rather than as, you know, a Mahar reg regiment, for example, we are giving up. We are despondent. We are submitting to our social position. And so we need to recognize that we are a martial people, we are proud people, we are brave people, a courageous people, and so we have to stand up and fight for our social struggle, not just the military military one. So the, the way he had this military background uh, really served to, um, to, you know, it, it really fed into his, his character, his charisma in, in, a, in a significant way. The religious background fed into possibly... You know what? This is speculation, but possibly in the way that later on he would connect so intimately with uh, Buddhism. Um, and uh, and then one other point is the very fact that the army brought the untouchables in, um, even though they you know, eventually excluded them again. But Ambedkar himself fought for reopening, relaunching two Mahar regiments when he was in government. Um, uh, the fact that they brought them in meant education. So his father uh, had a uh, bachelor's uh, degree, or its equivalent, uh, from a military from military training, and could speak uh, and read and write in English. And Ambedkar 
credits his father for uh, for being the person who uh, uh, trained him into having the eloquent uh, command of English that he had. You know, he wrote all of his uh, published books in 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 extraordinary English. And anyone who's read the Constituent Assembly debates or heard him speaking in public knows the kind of um, uh, uh, beauty and perfectly chosen phrases that he would employ. Uh, it's very shocking to see in 1946 that he gives an ex tempore speech in the Constituent Assembly on unity, on national unity. And it's the very thing that causes the entire Constituent Assembly to stand up and clap and gets him appointed as the um, chairperson of the drafting committee. You know, the, he's, he impresses the entire Constituent Assembly. People he's been writing books against. You know, in 1945, he published what Congress and Gandhi have done to the untouchables. He attacks these people. But in 1946, he gives an he just stands up, gives a speech. I've read that speech so many times because I'm so envious of his, um, of his command of uh, the language, his command of rhetoric, the beauty of his uh, turns of phrase and so on. And he credits his father for all of these, all of these things. Uh, so his father had a great influence on his life for, in the terms of religious, uh, demanding religious um, uh, ritual repetition, in terms of uh, training him in English, and in terms of uh, allowing him to inherit these military virtues that would lend into so much uh, courage and his ability to give rallying speeches that we're not a cowardly people, we're a courageous one. <laughs> That's interesting. So I think two questions from what you have said. I think the first question is, um, especially the religious ritual reading, uh, though from an early childhood he was made to do the reading of scriptures by his father, you write in the last part of your biography, which is at maybe at the 1920s, Ambedkar could not actually see how these untouchable saints, right, especially like Chukka, have contributed anything substantial to the social sphere despite their advocacy for the equality. Did he change his stance in the next part of his life about this? It seems it seems so, but the but the basis for that claim of the change is. Only one thing, which is the dedication that he makes in his later book uh, in the 1940s. In the 1920s, he's obsessed with reading uh, and studying uh, uh, texts and scriptures from Bhakti Yoga and other uh, 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 sub-traditions of, of uh, untouchable saints and so on. And his conclusion is that, you know, it's one thing to get yourself recognized for your inherent dignity. It's another thing to get yourself included on the terms of the oppressor. So if one is to be, let's say, tokenized, you know, uh, uh, we need a Dalit uh, speaker on this panel of uh, that where we're talking about social issues, let's say. So let's make sure we get it a little. You know, this kind of tokenization versus we know that the lived experience and study of Dalit uh, 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 scholars is extremely insightful and valuable, and therefore we need.
need a Dalit speaker on this panel. You see, those are two very different phenomena. One is recognizing the, that uh, a person. The other is tokenizing a person. Now, Ambedkar was always worried, concerned, that the saints, uh, untouchable saints, were included as, were revered and included within the kind of canon of saints in uh, Hindu uh, history. Not because they were recognized inherently, but because there was a kind of sense that if you can be as saintly as this person, if you exhibit all of the dharmic um, kind of brahminical virtues, then we will let you be one of us. And that's, uh, you know, that's not a healthy social um, uh, achievement. That's just a kind of um, co-option, appropriation into the mainstream social paradigm. So in the 20s, he, his fear was that untouchable saints basically gave people a model, untouchables a model, the marginalized a model, that if you just enter into the mainstream on the terms of the dominant uh, and oppressing castes, then you will be accepted. But is that how we want our social life arranged? Is that what we think about as social emancipation? Not at all. Social emancipation is to be recognized for your inherent dignity. And so he didn't think that the, the, the saints had anything to contribute in that regard. So I hope you understand the, the argument. It's a little intricate. Later in the 1940s, I believe when he recognized more and more what role religion such as Buddhism, you know, by, the, by 1948, at the very latest, he knew that he was going to convert to Buddhism. Many people, you know, it happened much later. But definitely by the time that he wrote the foreword to Lakshmi Narasu's uh, Buddhism book, he knew it. So, uh, uh, and his wife, Savatambhita, even suggests in her own autobiography that uh, they had converted much earlier uh, in a private ceremony. So, uh, I think in the 1940s, he already was recognizing... You know, and I argue in the preamble book that when Ambedkar writes about fraternity and dignity in the preamble to the Constitution, there is a sense that this is maitri or metta, Buddhist, uh, a Buddhist uh, uh, concept. So I, I think he recognized in the 1940s the contribution that religion makes in one's social efforts, social struggles. Uh, so then he dedicates his book to the untouchable saints. A gesture that in the 1920s he never would have done for the reasons that I uh, that I had articulated. Okay. So I think next I want to move to some of the intellectual influences, and I think the greatest intellectual influence for Ambedkar is from John Dewey, his professor at Columbia University. Could you reflect a bit on their relationship and their influence? Because I think Ambedkar once says that, which you have said in your book, that Ambedkar claimed that he can go back and completely write the uh, uh, lectures of John Dewey. So what is the kind of relationship they had and the influence? Yeah, so we, we should be a little cautious about that. If we, if we speak strictly in terms of academic, intellectual influence, then indeed John Dewey is, is the person that we should recognize. 
But, you know, Ambedkar never dedicated a book to John Dewey. He did uh, reference the kind of gurus that he has. Um, and this, you know, this is uh, Fule, for example. Fule is really the uh, the most profound influence um, uh, in the non-academic intellectual uh, domain. So, um, so we need to be a little cautious about if we say, you know, the person who had the most influence on Ambedkar's uh, thought. Uh, yes, from the point of view of academic uh, kind of enterprise, but no, from the point of view of the Indian social context and his uh, wider... Uh, because Ambedkar's, Ambedkar's use of Dewey fits into a far wider framework than Dewey's own thought itself. As I mentioned, Dewey never spoke about caste. Right, so how can uh, that influence be total on Ambedkar? Now, the reason I bring this up is that a friend of mine, Scott Stroud, has written a very brilliant book, uh, "The Evolution of Pragmatism in India." I don't know if that's the Indian title uh, of the book, but that's the U.S. title of the book, uh, "The Evolution of Pragmatism in India." And uh, uh, in this, he argues very systematically the influence, lifelong influence that Dewey has on. Ambedkar's uh, work. But there is a sense, we have to be careful, that many American Ambedkarite scholars are now in some way, and this is happening at Columbia University also, are now in some way trying to say something like, you know, India sent us an unformed Ambedkar, and we sent you back a fully formed Ambedkar. And this is taking undue credit on the part of the um, Deweyans and the American uh, educational system because indeed he learned a great deal at Columbia University that would influence the rest of his life but what uh, there were you know thousands of Indians have gone to Columbia only one Ambedkar came out right so there's a lot more about Ambedkar than Columbia and, and Dewey okay with all of those caveats presented uh, what Dewey really taught was a way of intermixing or recognizing the the the, um, the 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 way that let's say social thought permeates political thought, permeates ethical thought, permeates legal thought, permeates religious thought. The organic interrelationship between all of these uh, areas that Academically, we tend to keep distinct and distinguished. So ethics has nothing to do with law, or law has nothing to do with religion, or something like this. Dewey's thought was very organic, and at the same time was uh, completely non-absolute. And this non-absolutism was very good. That's what we call pragmatism as opposed to absolutism. was very useful for a maker to understand how to negotiate in a context in India where everybody is Sanatani, you know, what we say is absolute and eternal and cannot be changed. You know, the polar opposite to something like a Sanatani position is pragmatism. No, every generation changes. And Ambedkar tried to prove this to the uh, Sanatan Hindus themselves, that you right now are claiming that your tradition is Sanatani, but if I go back and I read the Dharma Shastras, which he did very carefully, if I go back and I read the Manushmati, 
it says X, Y, Z, and yet you practice ABC. So you explain to me how your unchanging eternal Sanatana tradition uh, has changed so much. You know, that's why he wrote, for example, the riddles in Hinduism. What about the meat eating that used to be practiced during the uh, Vedic times? Right now, you are championing this vegetarianism and uh, criticizing uh, enforcing a beef ban, rallying for the constitution, for example, to to to, to not allow uh, beef. And yet, I read in the Vedas that uh, the Brahmin priests were eating beef in their sacrifices. You know, so he would make these kinds of arguments against his ideological and political opponents which came which he which he learned in many respects by understanding that absolutes are generally a fiction for the human mind you know, the human mind might want or desire absolutes but it is always negotiating and um, uh, evolving and this evolution like Scott Stroud's title the evolution of pragmatism in India this also suggests the way that Ambedkar evolved Dewey's own pragmatism into his own unique kind. Because as I mentioned, Dewey had no lived experience about caste and untouchability. And this uh, Ambedkar's life, early life, as you know, was abundant with precisely these kinds of experiences. Um, and the mixture of Ambedkar's lived experience with kind of advanced scholarship and education he had at Columbia. These two things together helped to make Ambedkar Ambedkar. Uh, as I said, Columbia produced thousands of graduates, but they didn't have that lived experience Ambedkar had. They didn't have that you know, tenacity that was characteristic coming from his father, the religious background, the, the military background. You know, all of these unique elements that went into Ambedkar's life are, of course, the things that produce the output uh, of Ambedkar. Dewey was a very a significant uh, uh, influence in, 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 in that respect, one of those inputs that produced this output that is uh, Baba Sahib. Yes. So now I think you initially mentioned about dedicating the books. He did not dedicate books to Devi. But now I want to bring to one, I think the most controversial part of your book, which I think would have got you into trouble, is his dedication of the book Gandhi and Congress uh, to F, yes. uh, his family. So yeah. would you like to talk a little bit about the relationship? Because um, one of the claims is that you have quoted that particular really intimate uh, paragraph from a letter from an WordPress blog. So, yeah. uh, so would you like to reflect on the relationship? Yeah, sure. Uh, so... Uh, Look, you know, the people who have criticized me for the, that citation know very well that it there's a high court uh, stay on the publication of the F letters. So if I, I'm in possession of two of these letters, the ones that I cite, if I were to reprint them, I would be violating, I would be in jail right now. This podcast would be happening from jail, okay? So, uh, the people who have criticized me know very well that the only reason I cited to the uh, to that uh, blog was precisely because it's in the public domain. So I'm not allowed to to reprint the letters, so I couldn't reprint the letters. But if readers want to see this let- these letters, I can't print them. But you can see them in this public domain. I had nothing to do with uploading them to WordPress that's been there for years. I'm, I, there's no you know, trace of my 
computer to that uh, phenomenon. So I'm violating no law by citing to that public uh, uh, resource. And yet, surely your law training is coming to use here. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so that was a just a technique to keep myself out of trouble. Now let's go and think who has moved for that stay in the high court. Prakash Ambedkar. You read the back cover of my book. Who has endorsed my book? Prakash Ambedkar. Which suggests that, and he is also a lawyer, which suggests that he acknowledged that the technique that I used was a legitimate technique. I didn't violate the stay. I didn't publish the letters. And uh, uh, so the people who have criticized me for this, they have to know that this is the case. And it, it would be so ridiculous when I take pains throughout this book to correct every single error that has appeared in every single biography that suddenly on page 100, I'm going to introduce something completely bogus. That's an absurdity. So I think a charitable understanding of me, my work, my skills as a lawyer uh, would let any reader who's reading in good faith know that this is not some kind of a hoax and I'm, this is not my source and so on. So really the people who started criticizing me for bringing that out uh, are just uh, maybe don't like me personally or something like that. But there's no, you know, the book can't be faulted. It was actually one of the most clever things I think I've ever done <laughs> by, by citing that article because it shows where the reader can see it and I'm not violating the high court injunction. Now, why are people upset about it? Because of the content, right? Because of the content, because it shows this relationship which people don't want. Now, why do they not want it? As I talked about much before, because there are two ways of representing Ambedkar. One is as a god. The god doesn't have these passions. The god is beyond them. And the other is as a thinking head. And a thinking head doesn't have a body that has, you know, romance and feelings and emotions and so on. So basically, the necessity for introducing the the influence and the relationship of F on Ambedkar and with Ambedkar is because he is a flesh and blood person who has desires just as we have, who had romances just as we have, and Nevertheless, is exemplary. And how so? Because we see the passion in that letter. We see the ways that, you know, he exchanged letters with her weekly or bi-weekly for two decades. That's not a casual relationship. So I'm, I'm only in personal possession of two letters, but there are some uh, 90 that, that, that are out there. Incidentally, I should say as a footnote that I have corroborated the authenticity of the two letters in my possession in a way that is very, very certain. People have said these are hoax letters. Well, then answer the question, if these are hoax letters, how it is that they include the names of all of F's children? Do those names appear in any biography of Ambedkar? In Dadanjeki? No. Are they even in Karmode's 12 volumes? No. If Karmode and the 12 volumes of Karmode does not know the names of these children, how is it that some scoundrel is going to write letters putting the names of these 
children into the into the letters. Those names were only known to two people, one Ambeta and the other F. And so, uh, uh, through this and other techniques, I have verified the authenticity of the letters. But as I said, I did not violate the, the injunction and I did not publish. Now, if he's a man, he's having this relationship, what does he choose to do? He states it very clearly. He might want to marry her, but he has a mission in his life. I said it early on. He has a mission. And that mission is nothing short of the emancipation of his people. If he is to give in to his personal uh, inclination to have love, to be to be loved. Now remember, his mother died when he was young. His own wife, Savita Ambedkar, said what he wanted throughout his life was a kind of affection from a woman. That's why he liked to be bathed in the tub by Savita Ambedkar. You know, he would sit in the bathtub, and uh, as she writes in her autobiography, and she would bathe him like a mother bathes a child. And he loved it. Now, I don't think I'm in a position to say that his own wife of almost uh, nine years is wrong about the kind of paternal affection that he needed in his life because he lost his mother early. Okay, that's a kind of psychoanalytic interpretation that I'm not eligible to, to put forward, but I can't say that she's wrong. So, assuming that she's right, assuming that you know he's lost his wife, Ramabai has, has, has passed away, he's has a long-term relationship with this woman who gave him shelter when he was in London and hungry. You know, there are many, many reasons for him to give in to his emotions, his, you know, personal basic human drives and marry this woman. But he tells her, you know, she writes a later letter about being profoundly disappointed because she wanted to go to India with him. And in fact, even the Bombay Chronicle ran, I believe it was Chronicle, ran a uh, a story uh, saying that Ambedkar has married an English woman and is coming back to Bombay with her on the steamer. And thousands of people gathered at the uh, port to watch Ambedkar disembark the steamer with his English wife. And when he disembarked alone, they were all very disappointed. And he said, you think I went to England to marry? You know, he just made that quit. So, um, incidentally, you know, these things should also be known to the people who criticize me and say that this is fake. So are you telling me the 1935 newspapers were also in this conspiracy that uh, that he had this relationship? So the relationship was known, uh, was fairly public, and, uh, and the letters are authentic. But what is the true part of it? The true part of it is that he was a flesh and blood person. And okay. he sacrificed this relationship for the sake of his mission. He told her in a letter that if I were to marry an English woman, on the one hand, my political opponent, op opponents would call me anti-national, would call me a British stooge, would say I've married a white English woman, so how can I be um, uh, fighting for Swaraj, for the nation? Remember, this is pre-Republic, right? This is still during the um, uh, 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 agitation for independence. So that's on the one hand, you know, Congress would immediately, the nationalists would immediately blame him. On the other hand, he said, I don't think my people would understand, that my people would understand 
they all they've deified Ramabai. You know, she's become like a a, a, a a saint in their eyes. And if I were to bring you know you into my community, it would cause great confusion amongst my people, and it wouldn't help our cause. And then you know, there he gives some other arguments. But basically, the the the, the short point of it is that this relationship was a real relationship. He was a real person with real human needs. And yet, he sacrificed this because what mattered most to Avedka was to accomplish his mission of the annihilation of caste and the liberation and emancipation of, of, of everyone oppressed by caste. And that is why I cite the letter. Because that letter shows us what goes into becoming Baba Sahib. I'm not Baba Sahib. I will never be Baba Sahib. Why? Because I would have married Ed. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know you. I know you're a very bright young man. But I could say, you know, would you do this sacrifice for your <laughs> mission? You see? So what does it take to become Baba Sahib? It takes precisely this kind of temptation to be human to have a normal life, to be loved, and yet to rise above it because the mission tr- trumps any personal inclination and desire. And that's why this letter is important because this letter shows something about the blood, the character, and the tenacity, the, the unflinching ambition of Ambedka to achieve his mission in a way that you know, is really enviable and in some ways uh, exemplary. And I'm gonna, I know I've been talking for a long time, but I'm going to tell you one last thing. I used to give many PhD kind of inspiration talks. One is there on YouTube, how to write your PhD and so on. And I told several of my students, the first thing you have to do is get rid of your boyfriend or girlfriend when you're a PhD student. They all got so mad at me. In fact, one of my brightest former PhD students, who is now a professor at uh, at Jindal, very bright young man, he got so angry. He said he didn't want to talk to me for two years because, upon my uh, advice, he he broke up with his girlfriend, and now he's very lonely and unhappy. <laughs> but the reason I told him this is because you know you want to succeed as a PhD student, put everything you have into your research. You can always get married later. You can always have romance later. Now is the time to focus on your aim, you know, your goal, because you need this PhD to advance further in life. Uh, relationships will come, can come anytime. So, you know, I've, I've told many people precisely this because of the, uh, you know, Ambedkar's life in, in, the, in the background of my, of my thoughts. And it hasn't it hasn't that advice hasn't been taken well. <laughs> oh my god, that is very interesting. Okay, now you are we are actually emphasizing a lot of how much he sacrificed on his mission. Now I would like to focus on his mission. I think the annihilation of caste itself. So before we talk about that, one thing which I want to bring in is his uh, uh, paper which he had presented at the Columbia University, the caste in India, their mechanism, genesis, and development, where he developed a we can claim the new sociology of caste. Right. Would you like to reflect a bit on that? Yeah, so there's uh, something very essential in that text that has very rarely been 
uh, 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 pulled out of it and explored. Uh, Sharmila Rege did, uh, did this, and this, uh, you know, I credit her for opening my eyes to it. Prior, the, the, the prior forms that sociology took was basically ethnographic anthropology before Ambedkar's work, but Ambedkar's uh, turning away from that can really be credited to uh, Franz Boas, a friend of John Dewey's, uh, and co-taught a seminar that John Dewey and Franz Boas that, uh, that Ambedkar took, which, which was moving away from the racialism of anthropology and sociology. Uh, but any discussion of caste, on the other hand, happened in terms of framing caste as an issue of, uh, of hierarchy based on uh, purity and pollution. So, on the one hand, sociology was kind of race, racialist. On the other hand, caste was read as, uh, uh, as theological uh, purity and pollution. Now, Amitra rejected both of these things in his 1916 paper and said that actually caste has nothing really to do with religious purity and pollution, and it's certainly not like race, because it is not something that is um, visible uh, on the skin, and it is not something that is genetic, unless and until it becomes made genetic by the naturalization of a social phenomenon. So caste is a social phenomenon that gets naturalized, genetically through basically breeding breeding castes now how is breeding done uh for thoroughbred horses or for you know cute kinds of dogs that you want and so on how is this done Ambedkar says the process of the naturalization of a social phenomenon is undertaken fundamentally through the control of female sexuality this is a profound insight, the control of female sexuality. Then he explains sati, widow burning, uh, uh, child marriage, all of these things in terms of the control of female sexuality. And then today we know in contemporary India, a lot of the horrors of things like rape are vindictive uh, phenomena because the woman might have or the girl might have transgressed caste norms by having you know a relationship and so on and then gang rape and you know all kinds of horrible violence ensues so from widow burning and child marriage and sati and so on up to uh, vindictive rape caste norms are essentially the product of the surveillance and control of female sexuality that's why we have what's called very locality. Why is it that women move to the man's house after marriage for total surveillance? You know, in, in, in cultures of South India, there used to be matrilineality and so on. But those have more or less been abolished. You know, the, even in the South, become very locality, the movement into the man's house. Uh, so Ambika recognized in the 1916 paper that fundamental insight that Caste is not just about purity and pollution, and it is the naturalization of a social phenomenon executed through the surveillance and control of female sexuality. Absolutely brilliant. 
are so different from the sociology and the anthropology that came before. Amitka himself was so proud of this work that his first edition of Annihilation of Caste, of course, he mentioned some of these ideas, but Annihilation of Caste sold out very quickly. The print run was exhausted very quickly, and he needed a second edition. And yet he refused to issue a second edition. Why? Because he wanted to bring his 1916 paper into his uh, 1935 and what eventually became 1941 edition of Annihilation of Caste. In the 1950s, once again, he starts writing a set of books called Revolution and Counter-Revolution in Ancient India. And there, so 1956, 40 years later, what does he do? He cites heavily from his caste paper. Now, it's not normal. You know, I'm, I'm about 50 years old. I, I wrote books. In fact, if you notice in my Baba Sabambeta book, I have a footnote criticizing some things I wrote in my previous book. So for someone like me, two or three years later, I'm already doubting my earlier work. <laughs> Baba Tabambitka, 1956, is citing what he wrote 40 years earlier in 1960. So he really cherished what he had discovered in his cast in India paper. And the reason we need to understand why he was so proud of this work was not because he invented the sociology of caste in a new way, but because of this insight that caste is the control of female sexuality, which is characterized, the word that is used now is, that it is essentially Brahminical patriarchy. Now we know why it's Brahminical, because it's a system of graded inequality, where Brahminism, which is an inegalitarian ideology that suggests that some people should be treated differently from others, and the very definition of justice in Brahminism is the unequal treatment of people. Now, you, you and I know, even if we're not lawyers, that our definition of justice is fairness, that you treat like situations in like ways. But in the ideology of Brahminism, the definition of justice is unfairness. You treat like situations in different ways. So we know what Brahminism then is, graded inequality, graded dignity, and treating these different types of people, allegedly different types of people, in different ways and calling that just. The patriarchal part is the regulation of female sexuality, in that in this system of graded inequality, every varna or every group in the system has somebody to exploit below them, even if they are being exploited from those above them. That accounts for the long-term stability of the system. So basically, Everybody gets to enjoy the spoils of exploitation in this system. That's why the system is so long-lasting. Once again, uh, the originality of Ambedkar's sociology of caste. Because what would Srinivasan say, or what would Louis Dumont say, you know, other uh, people even who recognize hierarchies, they say it is kind of purity, spiritual purity, things like this. Ambitka says, no, it has nothing to do with spiritual purity. It has to do with the fact that even a Shudra man can exploit a Shudra woman. Even a Dalit man, if, he's, if the Dalit is exploited by the Shudra, can exploit a Dalit woman. Which means what? Which means that there's only one group of people who can destabilize this system. Only one group of people who don't benefit from oppressing someone. 
And what group is that? It is the group that is the most vulnerable. So the only group that doesn't gain from the system in some way is the one who is most exploited and vulnerable due to that system. So the stability of the system can only be brought down. Okay. Uh, so, uh, sorry, I was giving too long of an explanation, but basically the innovations of Ambedkar's view of caste, on the one hand, were profound change because he recognized the interrelationship of caste and the way that the system is so stable because the weakest link is the only thing that can topple the whole thing. Only the, the most vulnerable has an interest in overthrowing the whole system, whereas everybody else in the system benefits from it in some perverse way. And secondly, this um, uh, his own uh, appreciation for this discovery as a young uh, man in 1916 uh, repeated itself 35, 41, 56. He was constantly referring back to this insight because it seemed that no one else was recognizing the role that the surveillance and control of female sexuality plays in the perpetuation of the uh, of the uh, of the system of Brahminical uh, uh, patriarchy, so it's a, a really amazing uh, work. It has flaws, of course. I mean, he was so young when he wrote it, but this insight is an insight that even today I think is not widely known. That's true. That is true. Now, because if I mentioned Evans Srinivas somewhere, I want to take this conversation to Evans Srinivas. So, Ambedkar's rejection of ideas of Sanskritization and the Westernization, and also I would like to add the Harjanization. So, would you like to reflect on that? Because you have also criticized Jeff Alert for his uh, interpretation of these things that Ambedkar had these ideas when Ambedkar has decided to create recreation centers, hockey, etc., etc. So, on this. Yeah. So let's say one by one, the Sanskritization idea. This, uh, uh, since you started with Srinivas and Jaffa Law, uh, uh, shares it. This notion is really um, an abstraction. It's, uh, it's an abstraction because one lives social life in a real social world. And the values that are... Uh, prevalent in that uh, world are not necessarily values to which you ideologically ascribe, but you might just culturally uh, uh, entertain in some respect. So if hockey is a sport that is being played around, and if you're trying to find something productive to do with idle young young people, young boys at that time, to ensure they don't go into criminality, they don't go into gambling, they don't go into drinking, they don't go into um, uh, uh, the sex trade, you know, all of these kinds of things. And you think, you know, let's develop some sports centers. It's a model that's used in ghettos in the United States, in favelas in Brazil, you know, it's so it's, it is a model for marginalized and socially disadvantaged communities to find something productive to do with idle young boys. It, just because Ambika chooses hockey doesn't mean that he's decided that a Brahmin sport is what he wants for his uh, community. So I think Jafalo and the Srinivasan idea is very abstract and it doesn't understand the ground reality. You're not choosing it because it's Brahmin, you're choosing it because it's there. So um, so this is very unfair, I think, of Jaffer to say that 
all of these, you know, just look, he's opening a library, not because he's trying to make Brahmins out of Mahat. He's opening a library because he wants to educate people. You know, can you not see that? So why you can't see that is because you fit the you fit the data into an archetype you already had, rather than just doing a kind of understanding of how do you bring a people out of poverty? How do you bring a people out of out of, out of penury and so on? You educate them. You 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 make them self-reflective. You make them politically active and so on. It doesn't mean that you brahmanize them, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so this Sanskritization model is very abstract and it tries to force fit the empirical information into a pre-given model. Uh, that's not what Amitka was, was attempting to do. Now, sure enough, there was experimentation. What do people want? There were, there were ceremonies where if in the current scenario, the 1920s, the sacred thread could only be worn by the uh, uh, Savarna twice born, then we're going to we're going to fight against that by giving the thread to everyone. Okay? So universalizing the thread instead of allowing it to be the prerogative of the Savannah. Well, later the insight was, why don't we just abolish the thread altogether? But one was tried and the other was the final choice. I don't believe that that means that he went from Sanskritization to the uh, to the opposite. Yeah. It is just this the the trying the experimenting with different ways of social emancipation and overturning religious uh, hierarchies it doesn't need to be fit into the frame of Sanskritization and then overcoming Sanskritization. Uh, so that I I, I completely reject. Uh, that and I find it very Eurocentric. Then, what other ideas is he uh, uh, negotiating through? Well, Westernization. I am writing a book currently about the myth of Westernization, which is that we tend to think that certain ideas, and it's very often repeated, like liberty, equality, fraternity, are Western ideas, and therefore our constitution. And is, is a very Western one and a non-Indic one, and it needs to be decolonized. Well, let's if we look at each of these concepts in turn, what we understand is that the origin of concept is not the meaning of a concept. You know, people are very pedantic sometimes. People like myself who know ancient languages will often say, you know, the etymology of that word is such and such and so and so. But really, do we care about the etymology, the origin of a word for its meaning? The meaning of a word comes from its current social context and the way that people, communities of language speakers, fill in that, that content. The meaning doesn't come from its etymology. So why is it that we say that, the, that, that, that a word like liberty is a Western word? Liberty arose as a concept in 18th century um, uh, revolutionary movements like the French Revolution and the American Revolution. So the French Revolution declared that all people are free and equal in rights. The American Revolution uh, declared that man is born free um, uh, uh, inherently, you know, so inherent freedom, inherent liberty. So both French and American revolutions inaugurate that word. That's the etymology, let's say. 
But the Haitians, Haiti was a colony of the French. Once the Haitians, black Haitians, learned that the French had declared that everyone is free, what did they do? They said, oh, we're free. But what did the French do as soon as they found out the Haitian colony had an uprising? They sent battleships to enslave the Haitians. Now, what that means is when the French declared liberty and equality and freedom, they only meant for the white man. They didn't mean it in a universal sense. And who supported the French to oppress, re-oppress the Haitians? The Americans. The Americans have just declared their own revolution and declaration of independence that all people are inherently free, and yet they send a battleship to help the French to oppress and suppress the Haitians. Why? Because the Americans, just like the French, meant only the white man. The Americans had black slaves and they didn't want the Haitian uprising of the black Haitians to spread to America and make their slaves think that they were meant by these declarations of liberty. Why am I telling you all this? Because when we use the word liberty and freedom today, do we mean the American and the French one? No, we mean the Haitian one, right? We mean the Indian one, which is to say when the British were telling us that everyone has equal justice, we knew that that only went for the white Englishman. It didn't mean, it didn't go for the, for the, for the upper caste uh, uh, brown Indian, and much less did it go for the marginalized, the Adivasi and uh, the trans uh, person and the Asmana um, Muslim and the uh, uh, Hijra and the Dalit. And, you know. So what do we mean by liberty? We mean that all of these people should be emancipated and free. What does that suggest? When a word means the content that we give it, it means that the word liberty is an Indian word because we don't mean it as just the white man or just the Englishman. So the meaning of this word, the content that you and I, when we use this word, have is a content that has not been provided by the West. It is a content that is provided by those who fought against the West, by the global South, by the colonized, by the marginalized. The word liberty then is a very Indian word even if the etymology might be French or American. So it's absurd to talk about decolonizing our constitution because these are Western words. No, these are not Western words. These are authentically Indian words because everything we mean by liberty refers to content that was not there in the Western world. The same, I could give you a long speech just as I gave you now about equality. But I don't have to because I'm being himself wrote a book on this revolution and counter-revolution in ancient India is precisely an argument that Buddhism arose in ancient India as an egalitarian movement against Brahminism. And that means that Ambedkar reinterprets the long history of India as a history of the evolution of equality from the Buddha to the constitution that he helped to, 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 to create. So that means that equality is not a Western word. Equality is the very animating principle of Indian life since the 6th century. So, uh, so Ambedkar himself showed that equality is a fundamentally Indian word. And we, you can read in Ambedkar's preamble how I talk about fraternity as being maitri, metta. So these, I just choose these three concepts from the Constitution, liberty, equality, fraternity, as being 
inherently Indian and fundamentally Indian, not Western concepts. So this idea of Westernization, just like the idea of Sanskritization, is not what was animating uh, Ambedkar. And then I think you mentioned three different uh, things, but I only picked up on the Sanskritization, Westernization. Harujanization. Harujanization. Okay, so this is the Gandhi and Ambedkar phenomenon. Why is it that, and I spoke about it at the very beginning, one is not going to enter the social and the political on the terms of the oppressor. One is going to enter it on her own terms. And that's why I will not be called a Harijan by you. I will give myself my own name. And I mentioned that, you know, uh, old people like me often refer to etymology. So what does the word autonomy mean? Auto means self. And nomi is nomos, nam. That means name. The word, the etymology of the word autonomy is to give oneself a name. And that's why the name of Dalit is so much more important than the name of Harijan. Because Harijan was a name given. But autonomy is about giving oneself a name. So rejecting Harijan and, you know, choosing, for example, uh, Dalit, opting for Dalit oneself from within the community. This self-naming is an act of autonomy. So the rejection of Harijanization and entering into the mainstream on the terms of the dominant is something Ambedkar radically rejected, radically rejected, which is part of why he stood up so strongly against Gandhi, because he was not going to enter the Hindu fold on the terms of Gandhi and be Harijanized. He was going to enter social, legal, political, religious life on his own terms, hence conversion and hence Dalit assertion and hence the rejection of Harijanization. Um, I think now we have to move to the most important part in, I think, this biography, which is the Mahatsatyagraha, right? And you write towards the end of your book that, I quote, to the wider world, he was Dr. Ambedkar, but 1927 onwards, he would forever remain Baba Saheb, but the untouchable. So the question is, what did Mahat do to Ambedkar? Yes. So... What Mahat did to Ambedkar, so many people ask me, I've divided the biography into two parts in such what they think is a strange place, you know, with Mahat. But uh, I believe when one pays careful attention to the internal psychological transformation of Ambedkar through all of these stages from uh, Biva Ambadavika to Bhimrao Ambedkar to uh, barrister Ambedkar to Dr. Ambedkar and to Baba Sahib. When one pays attention to all of this evolution, the real place to divide his life is here, you know, uh, post just the denouement after 1927, after Mahat. That's why I stopped in 1929. And then, of course, the second volume will begin with the Roundtable Conference, you know, a new way of understanding Ambedkar on the national and international stage. So why Mahat? Not only because this is what gave him the, the title, the designation of Baba Sahib by his own community, but also because it represented a fundamental insight for him. He realized that every time he attempted to assert the rights of his community, he faced violence. This he expected in terms of temple entry. So, okay, temple 
religion is a hot issue. People's blood gets boiling. And when the untouchables attempted to enter the temples, they were always pushed away. They were always bloodied. They were always beaten. Stones were thrown. Uh, sticks, you know, they were beaten with sticks and so on. And he kind of understood this. He understood that this was going to be the phenomenon. But he saw a public well, like Mahat, as just like a public road. Now, a public road is not such a hot issue like a temple. So the fact that when he and his people just decided to draw what is fundamental to any human life, water. You know, water is an essence for, for us. You can't live without it. You can go without eating for months. You know, you, you might know my weird dietary practices. I've gone 22 days without eating a bite of food. No issue at all. But you cannot live without water. And so Ambedkar thought, you know, we're just the basic thing that we need in life, public thing. It's publicly declared, just like a road to get from one place to another. Once we just try to drink water, we're going to be beaten, assaulted, assailed. People were killed for this in Mahat. There, were, there, were, there was murder. So this recognition really told Ambedkar that every step of his struggle is going to be faced not with resistance in words, but with violent resistance, bloody resistance, and that what the emancipation of the untouchables meant was not a mere social advancement, but was in some way a civil war. Some way a civil war. So he needed strategies to cope with what was eventually going to be a civil war that was going to emerge as a result of civil rights. So civil rights meant civil war. And this insight, this way of reorganizing his people, you know, he starts this social equality army and, you know, all of these uh, uh, new strategies that he begins comes from the, the, the Mahad struggle, the violence inherent in the Mahad struggle, his own need to determine what to do about violence because he stood somewhere in between Gandhi and Fanon. You know, like uh, 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 Gandhi was absolute non-violence. Fanon was righteous violence is necessary. And Ambedkar, around the time of Mahat, said, you know, just after 1929, uh, non-violence whenever possible, violence whenever necessary. So, you know, it really changes the way, and violence is uh, not just physical, but also you know, the words and so on, and the harsh words that Ambedkar would deploy against his ideological adversaries. He was not a polite man in his public speech, right? He would call people uh, names. He would, he, 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 he would stand. He, would, he was very, um, uh, uh, could be very insulting, you know, all of these kinds of gestures. Why? Because he knew this was a battle where kindness, deference was not going to get him anywhere. All of these things would lead at most to harajanization. Oh, you're so polite and kind, you enter it on our terms. You know, that's not his interest. His interest is total emancipation, freedom, and equality. 
And so for that, this civil rights battle meant a kind of civil war, and that meant violence when necessary. Uh, so this was, uh, you know, Mahad really taught him about the true nature of Indian social reality, that just because you try to assert something as simple as the right to drink from a public well, like the right to walk down a public road, doesn't mean you're not going to be met with profound violence. And so you have to understand the rest of Amitka's life in terms of having this realization, which he never expected, never anticipated. Um, uh, and, you know, he met uh, in time. The burning of the Manushpati also happened um, at, uh, at Mahat. So, you know, it was a real change in his tactics and a real uh, learning experience for him. Um, he got the title Baba Sahib and he lived the rest of his life with that title. And the rest of his life, he lived with that experience that you have to fight fire with fire um, when it comes to that. Oh, thank you so much. And I think with that note, we should end this conversation and keep the questions for your next volume. Okay. So I'll be pre-booking the podcast session with you. When yeah. is it going to come out? Yeah, I'd be very happy to, to, to come back to Navigating India. Thank you so much for, for your time also and for your careful reading of my book, which I can see from your questions. Yes. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Um, I'll be back in Bangalore in December. So hopefully we'll, we'll run into each other there. Too. Oh, so uh, when are we getting the second volume? Oh, second volume will be April 14th. Um, okay. Yeah, so exactly one year after the first volume came out. It's a really long wait, but we will be looking forward to it. And thank you so much and all the best. And by the time I think you finish more Iron Man races by our next yeah. session. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. Okay, bye. Okay.